interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everyone to a new episode of my bloody podcast. It's such a great episode. We're in day 430,287 of quarantine and lockdown and crazy times, but we're here bringing you all the entertainment horror movie news and podcast on the Multimedia Men Network. I'm Brian Kluger and I'm joined by the co-host with the most, the man who I want to surf down a city street with, Preston Barta. How are you today? Good. You can call me Barta. <laughs> call you Barta. It's such a, it's so good to see you, man. I can't wait to, to the time where we can watch a movie together in the flesh again. But this is a, it's a very special episode we have here today. We have an awesome guest all the way from Burbank, California, the conjurer of words, the intercontinental champion of screenplays. He wrote Planes. He wrote stuff for Tinkerbell, Elena of Avalor, an upcoming new Marvel show that we're going to talk about. And of course, he worked on our main event, Escape from L.A., Jeff Howard. How are you doing? Thank you, guys. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, really looking forward to this. I'm really looking forward to this, too. We have so much to get to today. We're going to do kind of our regular format today with our special guest, Jeff. And so I want to just start, uh, Jeff, with just, you know, how, how are you? How, how are you doing? How are you and the family doing out in California? We're doing great. Um, you know, because I work in animation, um, you know, most of the town has been shut down for production and live action production. Um, but in animation, we've been pretty lucky that we can do just about the entire show remotely from home. All the writing can be done from home, um, storyboarding, even editing. You know, we, we've sent rigs to our editors' houses. The voice actors can uh, do it sort of the exact same way we're doing this right now. We've sent, you know, pro quality microphones to their houses and recorded them over Zoom and, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, different artists spread out across the city working on the different facets of the production. So we've been moving full speed ahead on the, on the show that I'm working on. And it's, uh, but we've been, we've been lucky in that regard that we've been able to um, do all this stuff uh, without being physically together. Yeah, the, that's how, I guess for most of the people, that's how it is. But there's something I miss about being in the thick of it, being out there, and it just, it's been going on for months now, right? Yeah, it's definitely different. We've There have been some difficulties without us all being at the studio together and, you know, interacting in person. Um, but uh, we've really made it work. I think, you know, we're using up so much Zoom bandwidth every day, you know, that it seems like, you know, I've been busier than ever. Um, because it just, it, it doesn't stop from, you know, you, there's no like, oh, we're all going to go home now because we're already there. And you know, so <laughs> we'll just kind of keep working. But uh, the, the whole crew's been doing fantastic work. The stuff that's, that's uh, uh, coming together is, is really strong. We're really excited about, about the show. But yeah, we're, we do look forward to the time where we can all 
be together, you know, in person again. Awesome, awesome. Us too, us too. So let, let's get right into this. I want to ask you first, I want to ask Jeff, where did it all begin for you in film and writing? Like, where did it, where did it all begin? Was it something like a movie you saw and you're like, I want to be in the movie business right now? Was it something you saw as a kid? Where did it all begin for you? Well, I grew up loving animation and movies just as much as anybody else. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania, Allentown, um, you know, suburban, rural, steel town. My dad worked for a chemical company. My mom was a teacher. And so working in entertainment was not something that ever entered my mind at all. But I loved drawing, uh, making my own comics and stories. And then, you know, once we got into high school, making, you know, stupid little movies for history projects and just over the summers as, you know, sort of we would do birthday roast videos for each other and uh, um, that sort of thing. And I always thought like I wanted to be a pilot and be an aerospace engineer and do because my dad was an engineer and I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And then senior year of high school, my eyes started going bad. And at the time, it's, I think the rules are different now, but at the time, if you wanted to join the military as a pilot, you had to have 20-20 vision. And I started to slowly realize like, I'm not going to be able to be a pilot like I wanted to. And uh, a friend of mine, his, his, a really good friend of mine, his mom said, you know, you're a really creative kid. Did you ever think of doing something creative instead like film school? And I said, what is film school? I'd never even heard of that. I didn't even know that was like a major you could take and uh, ended up going to Syracuse for TV, radio, film. Um, came back home, worked at a little TV station in Allentown for a while, worked in uh, uh, corporate video in, in Virginia for a few years before finally um, taking the plunge to move out to Los Angeles and give the Hollywood thing a try. My, my best friend at the time still my best friend and my best friend for like 30 years I lived out here and he's, he's like, you got to come out, you know, we're, we're going to rent a house together. Um, and so I had some money saved up and uh, moved out here uh, in the summer of 1995 um, and didn't have any lead on a job, didn't really know anybody in the entertainment industry. Um, but there was somebody who was the daughter of a friend of my mom's who I had never met. And she worked for a producer named Deborah Hill and mm -hmm. said, Hey, go talk to Chris. She works for this producer, Deborah Hill. Um, maybe she can help you out. So uh, I went to meet with Chris, who to this day is a really great friend of mine um, and uh, met with uh, Deborah very briefly and another woman who was uh, the VP of her company named Barry Evans. And they said, well, we don't really have a, we don't really have a paying job for you, but if you want to intern here, you know, start for free and just learn the ropes of the entertainment industry. It's foot in the door. Uh, we'll teach you how development works and, um, you know, how scripts go from development through the studios, how they come from agents, how they get into production, everything. Uh, you know, you could do that. And I'm like, great, I'll take that. I'll figure out how to make money on the side. I'll get a part-time job or something like that. That was on a Friday. Over the weekend, my parents came to visit and my dad's like, so how's it going? I said, well, I, uh, I got sort of a job. It's an internship. Great. How much does it pay? Well, nothing. And he's like, you, you move all the way out here. You're taking a job for no money. Uh, I, I really hope it's going to work out. Like well, they supported me fully, but he's really worried about this. Monday rolls around. 
and they had just greenlit Escape from LA at the time. And uh, I go into the office on Monday to start my internship and uh, phone rings and it's uh, John Carpenter's assistant uh, over at the production office for Escape from LA, which has been open for all of two hours. And she says to my bosses at the time, look, uh, the phone is ringing off the hook. John is answering the phones himself. We need a PA right now. And so my bosses turned to me and said, okay, we told you this wasn't really a paying job, but do you want to go be a PA on the movie? And I was like, why couldn't this have happened on Friday? So I don't have to get crap from my dad all weekend about how I'm getting <laughs> on paying job. Yes, I'll go be a PA on the movie. And uh, that sounds awesome because I had heard about it. And I was like, it's so cool. They're making a sequel to Escape from New York, which I loved, which everybody loved, right? And uh, so I call up John Carpenter's assistant, Karen Costa, and said, oh, do you want me to, uh, you know, I can send you my resume and I can, you know, come over and interview. She's like, no, 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 you have the job. Just come over. Come over now. We need help right now. I'm like, all right. So I go over to Paramount and it was like the, uh, you know, typical kid goes to Hollywood kind of thing. I'm walking through those iconic gates of Paramount, like hooray for Hollywood is playing somewhere in the back of my head. And I was a big Star Trek fan at the time as well. And they were making, uh, they, they were making Deep Space Nine at the time. And I'm walking across the Paramount lot to get the trailer where the Escape from LA offices were. And, uh, and Cole Meany, played Chief O'Brien, comes walking out of one of the sound stages. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I know that, I know who that guy is. And he goes, hey, I'm like, hey. And I'm thinking, he said, hey, to me, like a coworker, like we work together. We work here now. That wasn't just like fan to actor. Um, and so I was, I, I started on the movie. The second day the production office was open, I had been here only, you know, a couple weeks. And it was sort of the old, uh, you know, cliche of I knew somebody and I was in the right place at the right time. And uh, uh, it, it, that began on the movie, like a year long adventure of, you know, an education about the movie business that I, I don't know how I, I could have ever gotten anywhere else. So it was sort of a, uh, it was a, it was a fun time. That's how I ended up getting started on, on the movie. That's a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was just the beginning of it. You know, it was, uh, um, this was uh, the great thing about starting on the second day of production was I got to see how the entire show came together from the very beginning. Um, Cause the only people who had been hired on the movie at that point were John and Deborah and Kurt and me and, and, and Karen Costa. So she was in the office. Um, and so seeing them go through the process of finding the other crew members, DP, production designer, editor, casting, all of that stuff. And, you know, I was in the production office most of the time because there were set PAs and there were office PAs. So I was in the production office for almost the entire production. There were times where I got to go down to set um, here and there, but for the most part, I was in, I was in the office. Um, but it was really fascinating to see, you know, my desk was, you know, 10 feet from the door of Carpenter's office. So if I leaned over, I could see him, you know, <laughs> all the time. But, uh, you know, getting, getting to meet him and get to know him a little bit and work with him and work with Deborah. And, uh, you know, Deborah became a huge factor in my career and my life for, you know, many years to come. Um, but uh, uh, it, was a, it was a wild time because uh, 
you know, you're working many, many hours a day, uh, ramping things up. Um, you know, the, the, the first time I met Kurt, um, he had just come into the office to just sit and shoot the shit with Carpenter. Um, you know, he never had anybody else with him, no like entourage or whatever. He just like drove himself on the lot or just wander in and wander into Carpenter's office. And, um, you know, they were, uh, they were just sitting there talking for hours and, uh, and I was the only other person left in the office, but I was thinking like, Oh, I can't leave. Like I'm watching the office. Like I have to stay here until they decide they, they want to go home. They want to sit in there and, you know, talk. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit here. And, and finally Carpenter leans out and he's like, you know, Jeff, you can go home if you want. Like, you don't have to stay here. We can, we can like, we can, we can like the trailer. I'm just leaving it. But I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And I wander out and John's like, oh yeah, Kurt, this is our, you know, this is our new PA. It's Jeff. And like, oh, Kurt's like, hey, how you, you know, how you doing? How'd you get, how long you've been in town? I'm like, oh, I've only been here, you know, at that point, like two, three weeks. He's like, oh, what, what have you been doing since then? I was like, oh, I was looking for a job. And then, you know, I've, I've been working. He's like, I would have been out trying to get laid. <laughs> I'm just like, oh. uh, I guess I hadn't had time to think about that. I mean, Kurt is just the coolest, most happy-go-lucky, fun guy in the world. Like he is like a, the guy you want to be friends with. So it was really fascinating to me after getting to, to know him a bit to, uh, I think during the pre-production um, executive decision came out. Remember the Kurt Russell, Steven Seagal movie. And uh, to see him after knowing him as such a fun, happy-go-lucky guy, then to go and see like, oh yeah, he plays hard-nosed, you know, grimacing tough guys on the screen. It was hilarious because I'm like, that is so not him. And it made me think like, man, he is, he's an awesome actor. Like that's so not who he is. He is more like the guy in Overboard. Like that's, that's closest to what Kurt's personality I think is really like from my, from my time with him, just the, the coolest guy. Um, and Carpenter, um, a brilliant dude, but super intelligent, um, very, uh, reserved and I don't want to say guarded, but like, it, it's like he knew enough people. Like he wasn't, he, he had his circle of people and, uh, he, uh, he liked to come and make his movie and do his work, but really intelligent guy about movies and about writing and, um, you know, uh, but, you know, he would like to get, get the shoot done and uh, go home and spend time with his, his wife and his kid. You know, well, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out in my head to set the stage. It's like, were you just out of school and you? No, I, I was a few years out of school at this point. So I was, um, I was in my mid twenties. I had uh, after school, I had worked at, you know back east for a few years in TV and video and stuff. Um, so I moved out here. I was 25, um, but still, like a newbie to Hollywood. No, that's a, that's a, that's young too. And like yeah. to get on a set like that, like a big. Oh yeah, no, I was so grateful. And the first job to be on a big movie like that, I was, I was super lucky. And especially with something like where your friends say, hey, what are you working on? I'm working on Escape from LA, dude. But that's awesome. Like everybody loved Escape from New York. We're like, that was something like you could tell your friends it would be like, that's a cool movie to get on. Um, and just, you know, the greatest crew, everybody was so professional and uh, uh, great to work with all the actors. I didn't get to meet all the actors, but some of them, um, 
and uh, you know spent a, a little time with with some more than others. But uh, it was it was just a, a great experience working your ass off. Like right, uh, you got to you pay know, your dues. <laughs> like like I, Kurt Russell which said, was you, fun. Pay. you know, I was making crap. You know, I was sharing a house with four with three other guys. You know, we had four of us in in this house. But it was that sort of. Uh, you know, it, it, it was this great formative uh, year for me. Um, and, you know, thinking back to that time, this is, uh, you know, mid 90s, one of the interesting things that, that happened during pre-production um, uh, and pre-production, at least in the production office was the most hectic time because everybody was there. Carpenter was still in the office, Deborah was still in the office, it was when they started shooting. In, in early December and mid-December that everybody, you know, half the people that were then off the set. But um, I don't remember exactly which month this was, but we were still in pre-production and, uh, you know, normally phones are ringing off the hook. Every minute, people coming in and out, phones are ringing. We didn't, really, we didn't have any internet at the time, you know, but everything was super busy. Um, and the one thing that happened around that time is the OJ verdict came in. I remember, I remember where I was. Yeah. So I remember where I was because it was in the midst of hectic pre-production and someone came in and said, the OJ verdict, is, the, the verdicts come in. We have one little TV in the office. We turn on the office, we turn on the TV and for like 20 minutes, no phone rang. Nobody called. Everybody in town is watching TV to watch the OJ verdict. And it was fascinating to me that all of a sudden the world shut down. Uh, you could feel it as people were watching that in pre-production. And then as soon as they announced it, things went back to crazy. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that was sort of the first um, six months of it. And, um, you know, thinking back to some, some of the casting stuff was, was interesting um, in terms of, uh, I, I, was, I was, you know, recounting to my wife recently about um, a couple other people who came in and read for Utopia in the movie, um, one of whom was Alyssa Milano, um, who came in and was, you know, came in to read for it. And, you know, while she was waiting, was like sitting across from my desk and uh, smiled at me once and made my entire week. Uh, <laughs> and, um, that's and something you went, put on your resume. Oh yeah, Tombstone. That's, that's at the top. It's like, who cares what I wrote? Alyssa Milano smiled at me once and I'm, I'll take that. Um, but also, um, I don't know if a lot of people know this. See, some of the things I don't know if this is out there about the movie uh, or not, but um, one of the other earlier considerations for Utopia was Kate Hudson. I did you know that. Did, yeah. I did, yeah. You did know that, right. So, um, and it was interesting because she, she came in and she was 16 uh, and had not done anything, I think, at that point. They were going to I think it's called Taft-Hartley, when you Taft-Hartley somebody, there's, there's, there's sort of an exception for people who aren't in SAG yet to try to get a waiver for that. Um, and uh, they ultimately decided, you know, that it shouldn't be Kate in that role. Um, and we're not sure exactly why that happened, but some of us guessed that uh, maybe Kurt and Goldie saw the costume designs that were skimpy <laughs> yeah. bikinis and then said, so you're going to be running around the set like that with a guy who's basically your dad for a lot of this. Like, maybe that's not, maybe that's not great. Maybe this should not be your first role. And uh, then, you know, ultimately um, ended up being AJ Langer, who was, who was great 
uh, as well. You know, she did a great job. Every, you know, everybody on the movie was so good. And, and a lot of the people Carpenter got, you know, like Pam Breer, who's just the nicest uh, person in the world. It's, you know, it's funny, mm -hmm. I, I got to meet her again just like a few months ago and said like, hey, you know, I, I was actually a PA on Escape from LA. We met like 20 something years ago. And Stacy Keach, who was actually in Planes, uh, that I wrote and so meeting him and saying like hey you know you uh you were it's we were we actually worked together um you know <laughs> once before it was just uh uh kind of kind of interesting and Peter Fonda I had there was one time I had to drive Peter Fonda from the airport um I had to pick him up at the airport in my you know old Eagle Talon if you can picture that <laughs> group and you know here's easy rider riding in my Eagle Talon and uh, just the coolest guy. And, uh, you know, talking about, you know, you, I think he lived out, he might still live out in Montana. We were talking about, you know, Bridget Fonda, his daughter. And I had to drive him to um, this garage in Beverly Hills where apparently um, celebrities who live out of town keep their personal cars at this garage. And it was like this underground garage where the first five levels were like for the office building. Or I can't even remember where it was, but it was somewhere right in the middle of Beverly Hills where it was an office building where the first five floors of the, of the parking garage were like regular parking. But then there was a gate uh, with a guard. And beyond that gate were like celebrity cars for people who either stored them there or didn't live them there. And there was this like, I want to say it was a Lamborghini Miura who he's like, oh yeah, that's Nick Cage's car. And this and he had wow. a he had down there this mint condition, like 1960s Mercedes pulled off the assembly line. And that was because he didn't live in LA anymore. He kept that car there so that when he came to town, he drove that around. So I was taken there to pick up that car. I was like, I didn't know this like little, if people knew this garage existed, people would be breaking into this thing to try to steal the cars. But it was <laughs> pretty crazy. But he was, he was just fantastic. And, um, the one uh, funny story about Valeria Galino, um, uh, you know, she uh, she hurt her ankle uh, during production. Um, probably, I think it was in the scene where they're coming out of the subway, the, the the sewer tunnel, and there's rocks and stuff like that. She twisted her ankle and messed it up pretty bad, and I had to go mm -hmm. um, to her house and pick her up and take her to the doctor for a checkup after she had already had like. Uh, something done to it. It was just like a checkup and her regular driver couldn't do it for some reason. So I went to her house and, and, and picked her up. And it was funny because for the first, you know, for the first 20 minutes, she was on her cell phone with somebody screaming at them at Italian for like the first 20 minutes, like out the door, into the car, just screaming. At them. And I didn't know what she was saying, of course, because I don't speak Italian. And she's yelling at them and yelling at them as we're driving the doctor. And then she finally hangs up and she's like, I'm so sorry. I just, you know, I, 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 I just, uh, and then she, and she was the nicest, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, and partway through it, my, you know, this is back when we all had pagers, cell phones, we, we lowly PAs didn't get cell phones back then, but we all had pagers, but I had, I had a text pager and my, my boss was texting me like, where the hell are you? Get back here. And of course, was in no hurry to drive back, you know, getting to hang out with Valeria Galino for a couple hours, but, uh, um, she was super cool and uh, you know everybody on the production was just uh, 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 it, so it was cool. great so so you you worked on uh, Escape from LA what was the transition like in going the full Disney route working writing for Disney well what happened was towards the end of the movie 
um, my friend Chris, who was Deborah's assistant, was leaving the job. And, uh, and I was still working on the movie. And Deborah just turned and said, Jeff, why don't you be my assistant? Come work at my company. I was like, hell yes. So I went to work for Deborah uh, for another few years after that. And actually, because Deborah had um, then tapped me to be her assistant, um, I ended up uh, staying on the movie uh, longer than a PA normally would. I would have normally rolled off months before the final wrap, after post-production, after release. So I was still on the movie after it was released. And I, I was actually the last person out of the production office. Like I packed up Deborah's boxes and shut off the lights um, in that trailer. Um, and uh, uh, so because I was there after release, um, there, there, there are a couple weird things that happened. One was, you know, it's well known that the movie didn't do that well uh, at the box office. And one of the, one of the things that happened, which uh, probably nobody remembers this, is that um, during the weekend of release on that Saturday, that it was, uh, I think, August 10th, um, there, was, uh, there was a huge blackout in the western half of the United States. And there were about seven states that lost power, something like four million people, which... I don't know what percentage it affected, but affected the box office somehow because for several hours they couldn't show the movie at theaters. And um, we had heard this story, which I am sure is apocryphal and didn't happen, but I choose to believe happened, is that in some theater somewhere when they were showing it, when Snake hits the button to shut off all the power to the world, that's when the blackout happened in the theater. <laughs> and people felt like, this is the most realistic movie I've ever seen. So I choose to believe that somewhere in some theater in the western half of the U.S., that happened on the Saturday of release. Um, but the other two funny things that happened is after release, um, and I was one of the only people left in the production office, uh, got two phone calls that were interesting. First one was... Uh, somebody who called up and saying, hey, is this the uh, office that made Escape from LA? I said, uh, yeah, th that's us. And he said, well, I took my family to see that movie this weekend and it was the worst thing I have ever seen. The writing, acting, the, the, the action was all hard. My entire family hated it. It was a giant waste of time. It was terrible. And I'm like, I'm just a PA. Like, so I'm, I paused for a few seconds. I don't know what to say to this guy. I'm like, you want me to take your name or then just he just hung up I'm like, okay uh don't know what to do with that information or who to pass it on to deborah was already on vacation at this point john's on vacation nobody else was there then i got another phone call of someone coming up calling up is this the production office that made escape from la yes and i said you know you have a line in the movie where uh, uh you know this character says um uh i was a i was a muslim living in south dakota all of a sudden they made it a crime. And they said, I just want to let you know, I'm a Muslim living in South Dakota and I want to thank you for putting that line in the movie. Said, oh, that's wonderful. That's, that's pretty cool. So that line is always stuck in my head from, from the movie because of that. And then they hung up. I don't know. So that was it. You know, it was an interesting, you know, all the way, it was sort of a full circle thing that as a PA, you wouldn't normally, like I was there from the second day the office was open to, to the end of it. I actually got to go to the premiere because Deborah was like, I have an extra ticket. You should come to the premiere. P yeah, he's never getting to come to the premiere, but she was like, well, you're my assistant now, so you can come. Um, Carpenter himself did not go to the premiere, uh, which was interesting because I think, 
I don't know if he had sort of a bad taste in his mouth about the production. You know, it was a like the biggest movie he had ever done, I think. Probably the biggest budget he ever had at the time, 50 million. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I'm not sure if because it was a big studio movie and just the machinations of that and everything. And um, I, I don't know why, if it was just like, hey, I'm not a social guy. I don't want to go do that thing. I've been to premieres. I made my movie. I'm going to spend the evening with my family. Um, you know, if he, what, what his, his reasoning was. But he didn't go to the premiere, but I got to go to that, which was awesome, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, I went to work for Deborah's company as her assistant slash junior development person. So I would read scripts and get to sit in on meetings and listen to, uh, you know, them discuss stories with writers, um, you know, send scripts out to try to, you know, get, get things set up places. Um, you know, Deborah worked on a couple different movies during that time. She worked on Replacement Killers. Um, she worked on a movie called Crazy in Alabama uh, that Antonio Banderas and Melanie Griffith did. Um, and then, uh, you know, I had been there for a couple years during which I met my wife, um, uh, Courtney Howard, who uh, was uh, one of our interns at the time. Um, which was also interesting because at the time this was on the heels of uh, the uh, Bill Clinton having a relationship with his own intern. So we were, and I, and I was just an assistant, so she didn't report to me or anything, but we were like, I was like, hey, Jeff, are you dating an intern? Yeah. I guess that was the popular thing at the time, but you know, now, you know, we've been together for 22 years at this point. It, it sort of worked out. Um, but that's where we met. We met at, at Deborah Hill Productions. So again, so much that I owe to Deborah. And, you know, after a few years, you know, really, it was such a small company. It, we, had, we, had, we had interns, we had, you know, a couple people there, but really, you know, the VP of the company, Barry, who was also a great mentor to me, um, she wasn't going anywhere and I wasn't really going to get promoted. And I was like, I feel like I need to strike out and, um, you know, find a new path. I need, I need to, you know, find some place with, with more room to grow. And Deborah knew that I loved animation. And she said, uh, she and Barry both said like, we well, should take a look at getting a job in animation. And Deborah like flew into action and set me up on meetings with everybody at every studio in the whole town. She's like, oh, I know Tim Burton. Uh, you should go meet Tim Burton. Like, I know this person. You should go meet that person. Because, you know, one of uh, Deborah's, um, big motivators was uh, people that she mentored. You know, her movies were her legacy, but also the people that came up under her were mm -hmm. her legacy. There are many people out there um, who became heads of production companies and very successful in the industry. And she took great pride in that. Um, and she set me up on an interview with somebody who worked at Disney at the time, who had worked for her before. Um, and, uh, it led to another string of interviews that, at Disney that finally um, got me a job there at the time as a, uh, a junior development executive, which was weird because I went from being an assistant to having an assistant. Um, mm. And uh, it was a humongous opportunity uh, for me. I was very lucky to get it. I found out later that like there were 50 other people that they had interviewed for, for the position. Um, but, you know, several months later, uh, you know, somebody comes to me and says like, oh, there's someone here to see you. And I go out to the waiting room and it's Deborah, who just popped by to like say hi and see how I was doing. 
Wow. Like, like, oh, here's one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood is just coming over here. She wasn't even on the lot, I don't think, for any other reason. Just came over to say hi and see how it was doing. Um, she meant so much to me personally and professionally. And, um, you know, I've had several people who were sort of my Hollywood moms, and she was one of the biggest and brightest. And, you know, one of the things that I, I always admired about Deborah was that um, she, you know, she, she built herself up, you know, she was very self-made when it comes to her career um, and could do all facets of movie making from not just the physical production, the nuts and bolts, the budgeting, the putting out fires daily, but was very smart creatively. Uh, you know, she wrote part of Escape from LA, uh, gave great notes, knew exactly what would make a great movie or a great story and was just, you know, the nicest person and uh, um, you know years later when she was uh, sick um, you know I, I hadn't seen her in a few years and there was actually a friend of mine who's a comic book artist who was working on the Snake Plissken comic book at the time and so he called me up he's like hey do you know Deborah's sick she's and she was actually at the hospital right across from the Disney lot and I had no idea and I went over to see her and sort of had a reunion and she was so happy to see me and uh, you know, and then it was a year later when she finally passed away. But uh, um, it was very sad because that was such a huge, you know, working for her and working on that movie was like my initiation to, to Hollywood. It was such an important, formative experience for me and, uh, you know, a time I will, I will never forget. But that's how I got into Disney um, was, you know, thanks to her and thanks to Barry and, um, uh, you know, and from there, you know, I, I worked at Disney as, as an exec for several years, shifted over to being a writer, worked on the Tinkerbell movies, the Plains movies, and, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of other things. It, it shifted over to uh, the TV series side, um, and uh, right now working on this Disney Marvel show called Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which I can talk about because they announced it, uh, which is uh, us and Marvel and uh, Lawrence Fishburne's company, Cinema Gypsy. Um, uh, you know, doing an adaptation of, uh, of the comic book series. And uh, we are super excited about it. It's going to be, it's going to be so good. We, we hope people. Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite characters is Devil Dinosaur. Huh? Uh, Jack Kirby. So yeah, I know Jack Kirby. Good stuff. So I'm, I'm, I, I like where it's going, by the way, with Moon Girl, sort of Moon Boy. And I, I like the whole idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, and the comic books are great. You know, we got a chance to meet with uh, Brandon Montclair, who was uh, one of the co-creators of the book, um, a little while back to share with him what we were doing uh, with the show. And um, he seemed to like it, which was important to us that, you know, he, he sort of uh, approved of, of the direction we were taking it, the people we have working on it. Um, it's going to be it's going to be pretty cool. We, we're, we're, we have great high hopes for it. No, I'm, I'm excited. I feel like you just gave us like the best treatment for a script that like that, that could be one of the greatest love stories. Just the, the whole thing on Deborah Hill. That's, that was really sweet. Yeah. She's, you know, it's funny um, because she meant, you know, I mean, I would not have met my wife if not for, for Deborah Hill. Right. Yeah. And uh, so uh, Courtney, a few months ago found these t-shirts that uh, I saw that. the, the Deborah yeah. Hill production ones. Well, I, I don't know if, if, if she had, she had told you about this, but, you know, this is all two weeks ago. I'm 
you know, going to the grocery store, of course I have a mask on and everything out mm -hmm. here uh, and doing social distancing. And I just happened to throw on that shirt that morning and I'm checking out and someone walks by and they're like, hey, I know Deborah Hill. And I look over and it's Karen Costa, who was John Carpenter's assistant, who I met that very first day. Wow. The production. And even though she had a mask on, I recognized her instantly. I'm like, oh my God, it's Karen Costa. And uh, we did a quick catch up and where you been? What are you doing? How's it going? And it was just like, and I would not have recognized her if I hadn't looked directly. If she had not seen that shirt, I, we would have walked right by each other. Um, Man, but, uh, rolls the best dice. Yeah, it really does. It really does. It's, it's so, it's so fun. And I found out like she's been living near us for years. I mean, she already lived here. We moved in this neighborhood about six, seven years ago and, uh, and she's lived here this whole time. I didn't realize that she lived over here, but hadn't seen her in many years and it's good to see her and catch up. That's cool. Um, did, so working with, or on, with John Carpenter and on Escape from LA and getting into the whole Disney arena uh, yeah. and you're yourself being involved in comics. Is, are there any like cool things you got to go in their archives and check out or see like in Disney oh, yeah. or? Oh yeah, there's, th that's one of the cool things is the, the, the building that I used to work in, which is on the lot called the Frank G. Wells building. Um, the, the first floor of that has the Disney archives which is a little, you know, part of it's like, you know, just where they keep stuff, but they have a room. Um, I hope they still have it. They might've moved it, but at the time it was like a little mini museum. So it has like Walt's old desk. Um, you know, it has cells from different stuff. It has like, you know, all sorts of consumer products that stuff they did, golden books, stuff from Tron, um, you know, mm. Donald Duck orange juice. Like it has a whole bunch of stuff in there. But the other great asset that Disney has is, uh, the animation, animation Research Library, or the ARL, which is uh, uh, down the street from my old office. Um, and it's where they keep all the artwork from all the classic Disney movies. And when I started working on Tinkerbell, we wanted to go back and look at um, some of the original storyboards from Peter Pan um, and sequences that maybe didn't make it into the final movie and things that they maybe didn't use. and you know, it's great because you go in there and you have to put on white gloves and they have somebody who brings out the material. It's like a library of Congress, you know, it's like, cause they bring the stuff out cause they don't want you to get oils on the, on, on the old paper and everything. But they, I mean, you could spend years in there looking through stuff. That's just like amazing, uh, classic art. So, um, yeah. And they, you know, they used to have a, a, a prop doc, uh, out uh, one of the warehouses where you could just go wander into it. They have just a bunch of old props in there. My favorite thing was, you know, hanging above the door was the big Flynn's sign from the Tron, the arcade in Tron, which is also one of my favorite movies. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the awesome things of working at, at Disney is the heritage of it, which is both, mm -hmm. you know, exciting and intim intimidating at the same time. Cause like you're standing on the shoulders of many, many, many giants. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, you have, uh, the opportunity to build on that legacy with different characters and stories. And um, it's always really hit home for me anytime I would go to the theme parks, which of course nobody's there now, although they're starting to open those back up. But when you go to the theme parks and see people walk around, you see, you know, how people interact with uh, Disney characters and the surroundings and the whole vibe of Disney, you know, it reinforces for you like how important this is to so many people. So um, both energizes you and sometimes scares the crap out of you about, you know, the, 
the magnitude of of of, of uh, responsibility. But it's been it's been fun. Disney's been really great to me over the last twenty two years. Because you've been inside those doors of Disney and working with Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, how do you feel that your relationship to these properties that they've created has changed over the years? Like, how do you feel that it is since, you know, Deborah Hill first started out with like Halloween and everything, like did, mm-hmm. did your relationship change? Well, I will say that um, for, a, for a long time and probably even now, I have no perspective on whether or not Escape from LA is any good. Because when I watch it, I have a completely different emotional experience. Right. I am, I am having, you know, flashbacks to, oh, I remember when we shot that. And, oh, I remember when, you know, they, they made up that part. And, oh, I remember, you know, that costume bit. Or, oh, yeah, Peter Fonda. And, you know, it just, so I have a completely different skewed, you know, uh, a view of that movie. It's, it's, I, ca- I cannot watch it objectively at all, I don't think. We just watched the, you know, the, the new Blu-ray again the other day. And I'm just, like, going down memory lane you know, watching and even things that I had forgotten and everything. But, you know, I'd always been a big fan of the other stuff that um, that Deborah did and stuff that she and John did together, you know, Escape from New York, Halloween, especially, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking of horror movies specifically, you know, talking to Deborah about it once, I was saying to her, you know, I thought the scariest shot in the movie is during the day when you see Michael Myers standing in the yeah. backyard with the, with the laundry. I'm like, that is the scariest because that it's so real and it was it was what was brilliant about that movie is because they didn't have much to work with it was it felt so much more real there's no cgi there's very few makeup effects there's not you know crazy ass camera stuff going on it's very visceral and seems like this could be your backyard and uh i remember at least at the time i don't know if this is at the time in 95 or leading up to that deborah said like you know we made that movie for three hundred thousand dollars and for a while it was the most profitable movie of all time percentage-wise based on how much it made versus how much it cost and you know they were rightfully very proud of um what they had done there um but yeah i i've i've you know, even the other things that Deborah did, like, you know, Adventures in Babysitting that she did with Linda Opes, you know, is still a completely different genre, but a favorite movie um, of ours, of, you know, mine and, and, and Corton's. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to watch those things, just like I was talking about, like, watching Kurt in another role. Um, yeah. That you, you need, since you know those people, getting a perspective on, you know, it, it, it sort of tells you some other things about them. Um, you know, the, speaking of Kurt, the other funny thing with Kurt was that, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's wearing the original Escape from yeah. New York costume, which he had kept. And he was so glad that he still fit into it. Like, that was a triumph. He was like, yes! Like, and not, you know, that it, it, he looked great for his age in the movie. He, he was awesome. I mean, and he, you know, he, he was, you know, he had a trailer, a separate trailer to, to stay in, a workout trailer to stay in shape throughout the whole show as well. But also, you know, he has hair extensions in during mm-hmm. That's not all his own hair. And I remember at the time he was mentioning that he really liked the hair extensions that he had on Escape from L.A. because apparently he had a different kind of hair extension on Captain Ron that whatever they did, apparently, the glue, like, soon after they put the hair extensions in, started burning his scalp. And you can't take them out for the entire shoot. They have to stay in. They couldn't redo them. So apparently he's, like, in pain for a good bit of shooting... Captain Ron and the hair, and he was like, "Oh, these are so much better." 
like so with escape from LA. But um, yeah, so those are like the kind of, yeah, so that's like the kind of things I think I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm like, oh yeah, the hair extensions thing. Watching it again. So I have a very skewed perspective watching watching their stuff. That's that's great. Um, I, this this story of yours is like like a fantasy tale. I think of so many people who want to go to Hollywood and do it. You know? Yeah, it's uh, I I have no complaints. I mean, there there have definitely been ups and downs and times where you know, struggled to find a job. You know, there was a period in between working for Deborah and going to Disney. You know, that wasn't an, an instantaneous. You know, um, and right. even you know, stints at Disney. You know, I was I was uh, uh, you know away from Disney for a couple of years, although I was freelancing and doing most of the freelance for Disney. So then I came back on staff. Um, but uh, you know, it's 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 been the the town's been very good to me. Disney's been very good to me, and uh, you know, I've been very lucky to work with a lot of really great, talented people. Um, that's that's always you know my my uh, metrics for a job have always been: um, do I like what I'm working on? Do I like who I'm working with? Like right. pay is secondary. Um, you know whether it's hard work or not like if, if you like who you're working on you like who you're, work, who you're working with like everything else is easy everything yeah. else is gravy um that, and luckily it's worked out that's great now i just want to know if all of these movie studios have a number i can call and give critiques or notes like <laughs> south dakota oh yeah no well it's weird because i i don't know like i don't know how you would do that i presume this guy or both of those guys the guy who didn't like the movie and the muslim from south dakota just call it like oh i mean and there's no internet at the time right so it's not right like you have to search that out paramount pictures main numbers somebody had to like go maybe even to their library to find an la phone book main number paramount pictures at 5555 melrose and call up main number <laughs> hey i want to talk to escape from la which means they have to get through the switchboard and the switchboard puts it through to us and here's me. Every time I answer the phone, I would answer production, which I would answer my home phone like that because I was so used to answering production. Even after, for a year after I worked for Deborah, my Disney office phone, if someone called me, I would pick it up and go, Deborah Hill Production. I mean, uh, Jeff Howard, you know, I, I was so used to saying <laughs> Deborah Hill Production, was answering the phone, it was just ingrained in my brain. But yeah, those were two, those were weird phone calls. The other it's phone cool. call, which I'm glad, actually, you know, Deborah never heard this story. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we were trying to do uh, was uh, we were hoping to get a studio deal with Paramount um, for, for Deborah Hill's company. And unfortunately, the movie didn't, you know, didn't do that well. And we didn't end up getting a, a studio deal there. But there was one day when um, uh, I was in the office and Deborah was out uh, in her car someplace and uh, Cherry Lansing's office called. And she was Cherry Lansing, legendary producer, executive has a great biography that actually Courtney and I were reading recently. Um, was the head of Paramount at the time and called up. It was her, the assistant. I have, I have Sherry Lansing for Deborah Hill. And uh, I quickly, you know, fumbled with to get the conference call to try to, hook, you know, call Deborah in her car, call up quickly. I'm like, okay, I need to connect this quickly. I need to, you know, it's a very, very important call. Call up Deborah in the car. Deborah, uh, uh, Sherry Lansing's calling for you. She's like, okay, go ahead and put her through. I quickly hit conference and Deborah goes, you know what? I, I'm driving right now. Can you just tell her you couldn't get me? I'll call her back later. And hangs up. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> crap. And I say, I to the, the other assistant, I'm like, uh, and she goes, I'll just let her know. And hung up and I was like, 
I never told Deborah that. Uh, and, but Barry, who is our VP of production, heard that happen, and she's like, "I'm going to hold that over your head for a long time." And I'm like, "I was trying to. I did the right thing. I conferenced it. I didn't know she was going to do that." So, I, in some ways, I blame myself for us never getting that studio deal, but um, uh, I, I may have been just one factor in it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would hope that Deborah, wherever she is, would forgive me for for that. Hopefully. <laughs> Well, that's pretty funny. I like that story. Well, let's uh, let's segue. We're going to get back to Escape from L.A. Yeah. Uh, in a little bit, but let's let's move on to our bloody question segment where we ask questions. Oh I'm very excited. So this question is really fun. Uh, we're gonna have a little fun with this. It gets us our creative juices flowing. All right. Uh, so the question is. So if there was a third Snake Plissken sequel, not, not Ghost of Mars, no. If there was a, a third Snake, Pl Snake Plissken sequel, where would he escape from? So basically, if there was this sequel, where would Snake Plissken escape from and how would he save the USA again? Who would the villain be this time around? So, well, of course, you know, in addition to Ghost of Mars, you know, they, they were working on Escape from Earth. At one. Yeah. So that's my go-to answer is, is Escape from Earth. I think they had it was years later they had actually hired a couple young guys to write a, a script for it at one point but i don't think anything ever happened with it but i still think that's that's the great idea but what i would do is just set it in uh uh the the year of june 2020 and it's basically our world as it is right now <laughs> and snake Plissken is like f this place i'm getting out of here you know it's just like the world is on fire and there's a pandemic like if you you could write an intro to an escape movie that basically describes the world right now and it would sound just as bad as the intros to escape from new york and escape from la i think and i think uh i would have phil hammond play the villain because he does the best donald trump uh in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh I, I don't know. I think I think you know what you just open the newspaper and it writes itself. But uh, there you that, go. I that's that. my vote. That's, that's my your vote. vote. Yeah. Uh, Preston, what's yours? That was pretty much mine. All down, right. Down down to everything. I was gonna. Well, I, I was I was thinking like more of like a apocalypse now type of thing where he's trapped and his, his villain is just his own mind and he's losing his own mind. Well, th speaking of that, did you guys have you guys ever read the Coleman Luck draft of Escape from L.A.? No. Um, this is this is going back a ways, but you know when when I started on it, it the script was the script that I I got when we started the movie is pretty much the movie that got me. The only two ex differences are that script does not have the Coliseum sequence in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have the uh, Surgeon General Beverly Hill sequence in it because Deborah wrote that latter sequence and Kurt wrote the Coliseum sequence. Originally, Cuervo Jones's uh, hideout was supposed to, in, according to that script, which is actually sitting right over there. Um, you know, actually, so it's, <laughs> you guys can't see it on the radio, but it's my old Deborah Hill Productions. Oh, uh, that's so cool. You know, that, that, that's the shooting script. But the, the original script they had in the summer before Corvo Jones's uh, hideout was at the Getty Museum, and Kurt actually wrote, and actually the other thing I have over there is his actual handwritten pages, because it was my job to type up his handwritten pages, because hmm. uh, apparently nobody else in the office could read his writing, so I actually got to sit with him for a while and type up some of the script pages, but he wrote the Coliseum basketball sequence, which I am convinced is because he just wanted to show off his basketball skills, 
Um, In the movie, he makes five shots, and all of them except the last full-court throw uh, he actually made. The the, the full-court throw is CGI'd going in, but everything, including, I think, the the half-court shot, he made those shots. And I think he was, I think somewhere in the back of his mind, he's like, I'm pretty damn good at basketball. I'm going to write a scene where I shoot, where I, where I shoot baskets. And, uh, and it's in this, in this big, you know, pitch and set of the Coliseum, which we totally trashed. Um, but. Uh, That's wonderful. Yeah. I like but, that. Yeah. The Coleman Luck version. I, the reason I was mentioning that is because the, the, the Coleman Luck version, which was actually written in 87. So long before this is vastly different from what ended up on the screen. Um, but, and this is out there, so it's not really a spoiler, but the end of it is he, he meets a clone of himself. Um, so it's not quite the, what, you're, what you're sort of pitching, Preston, of it in, in his own mind. But, you know, uh, uh, that draft tries to pull a twist at the end where it's actually that clone uh, is the Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. So the twist on the last page is that it's a prequel and all of this happened. Before. Wow. But all of the action of it, it, it's vastly different. You know, some of this, there's bits that are the same, like there's a, there's a Disneyland kind of parody thing in it. There's a Queen Mary thing in it. But a lot of the rest of it is very, is very, very different. But there's a lot of crazy ass, really weird, interesting stuff. In it. I like that. I like yeah. that. I, uh, I, I, went, I went really weird with mine, of course. Let's go. Uh, so I, I, near, I <laughs> thought of three and I went with, uh, one of them. Uh, and it is, uh, and I'll tell you why I thought of it or why I chose this, but it is escape from Poland. Um, basically at the end of escape from LA, the satellites, when he tries to, um, turn off everything on earth, uh, he, that causes some time riff and he is transported back in time to Nazi occupied Poland and it's nice. escape from free free everyone and kill Hitler and the Nazis and it's basically oh, have yeah. to get back to his own time so that's where I went with it. that's cool <laughs> I'd watch that I watched that greenlit greenlit all right call, great call, call John Oh, yeah, let's call John. I think it would be uh, wonderful. And so we asked this question on Reddit and we had uh, quite a few comments on it. So I'll just read a couple of the best ones. So one of them, um, Horrible Sanity said, Escape from Las Vegas. The city has been walled off and Siegfried and Roy's escape tigers now roam the strip. There will be a dramatic slide down the Luxor during the finale. Nice. Well, it's funny, speaking of that, that Coleman Luck draft starts off in Las Vegas. Um, there's a whole sequence where he's in Las Vegas, uh, where he gets uh, captured by Hoke, the Lee Van Cleef character. I'm not sure the exact pronunciation, but there's a crazy ass part in it where there's a slot machine where you bet parts of your body um, and you get more money depending on what part of your body you bet. And some guy walks up and like bets his finger and he wins some money at first, but then he loses and gets a finger cut off. And then Snake Plissken walks up and types into the machine, A-S-S. And people are like, he bet his ass, he bet his ass. <laughs> and then he ends up blowing the crap out of the machine and then gets his caption stuff. But there is a whole part of Las Vegas in that, in that, uh, in that way back long ago uh, version of the story. That's great. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll read one more. Uh, Grievous from Grievous 1982, uh, Escape from Shanghai. Snake needs to go in during a zombie plague and secure a sample from patient zero so a cure can be made to save the world from a global pandemic and plague. 
That's cool. You know what? Actually, I was thinking of, you know, you should go international with it. Like, now see, that guy's a very business savvy. He's like, let's get the Chinese market. Although, you know, you'll have you'll have to say, uh, you know, you have to make the Chinese look good if you're doing that. But yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny you say Mark that because right after that, he says that would appeal to the Chinese market, there right? There you go. Exactly. <laughs> a a uh, future studio executive right there. Yep. And then, of course, uh, Jime00 said escape from dinner with the in-laws. So oh, there's that's a story. The one. That's it. No, and Snake dies at the end. <laughs> snake <Okay>. dies. <laughs> <in that one. laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't make it. Sorry. No, so we'll, we'll post this uh, Reddit uh, thread because uh, there's like 30, 40 more comments on it, but they're all they're all Very pretty cool. funny. Uh, but yes, that was a fun question. Let's move on to the tunes, the bloody tunes, where we try to mention a song that really makes us evoke emotions and thoughts of escape from L.A. So, Jeff, what, what, what song brings you into the mindset of escape from L.A.? Well, I, I was thinking about this, and there was really only one song that came to mind, um, which is sort of more specific to me, because uh, when I first moved out here, um, I had just gotten the first Foo Fighters album. And there was one song on there that always reminds me of that first year uh, in L.A., which is Alone and Easy Target. Because I think it was partly my fears of like, I am out here by myself and I hope I don't get taken advantage of or steamrolled by the industry. Um, But, you know, when you, when you had emailed that question earlier, I was thinking about it. I'm like, that also sort of describes snake alone in LA, (laughs) easy Mm -hmm. target and uh, sort of making it out alive. Although I guess the difference is snake has escaped from LA and I never did. So I'm still here. What about you, Preston? Uh, my song is a, is a corny track by Soundgarden titled Get on the Snake. Nice. Uh, I picked it for obvious reasons, but uh, additionally, it has this uh, Ted Nugent kind of rock riff in it that feel like it just exists so perfectly in John Carpenter's music library. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that would be my, I would, I'd probably put it right in the tsunami scene as they're surfing. Yeah. <laughs> That is uh, that is pretty great. I went, I went, I didn't go rock with this one. Uh, my pick is To Live and Die in L.A. by Tupac Shakur off yeah. the Seven Day Theory album because that uh, those lyrics, you know, talk about, you know, the government and, uh, you know, living and dying in Los Angeles. And I just thought, you know, well, you know what, I remember that song. And that kind of goes well with, I think, from Escape from L.A. when I think about it, so... I really enjoy it. It could be just like Nightmare on Elm Street 4 where you just randomly have a rap track at the end. Yeah. No, yeah, right? Like Monster Squad <laughs> has the rap track. Mm-hmm. Talks about the movie. I like that. Uh, so those are our bloody tunes. Uh, and then now let's let's talk a little bit more <laughs> about Escape from L.A. just because uh, Scream Factory has released a collector's edition of this movie on Blu-ray. And how many years has it been? Well, it came out in what ninety six, so it's uh, twenty four years. Yeah. Oh my goodness! It is a that is a silver is, anniversary next year, I guess. Yeah, no, it's a it's insane, and I just I, I love how you brought up that Kurt uh, Kurt himself kind of wrote the ending to the movie, came up with it, and you say like you just think that he wanted to be the 
show his basketball skills. But well, yeah, the, that, I was talking about the Coliseum oh, sequence, the Coliseum, yeah. but it's interesting. The, the, the ending of it, the, the switcheroo with uh, the, uh, uh, the remote was in the draft that I had read initially, but the, uh, they, they came up with the hologram thing later. Like that wasn't mm -hmm. in that. Um, th there are a few other differences with it, but yeah, I mean, they, they all contributed because even that draft that I have from, from that summer has all their names on it. So they had all written it, but it, subsequent to that, the new, the bigger new sequences that had gone into the movie after that, you know, um, you know, Deborah worked the most on the, the Surgeon General sequence and Kurt on the, the Coliseum Cuervo's headquarters. Um, uh, now, did, did, so this was a interesting role for both Bruce Campbell and Steve Buscemi. Did you get to work with them in any capacity? Uh, you know, I never got to, to meet either of them, but I was super psyched that Bruce Campbell was going to be in the movie. He, I think he only shot on it for like three days, but it was like, you know, anybody who's a fan of his is like, you know, Carpenter had a really good sense of, you know, he, he was never, a, when he was doing the casting, when they were all doing the casting, I never got the sense that they were about like, oh, who's the newest, hottest, whatever. He's like, I want the right people. I want good people. I want people who are, you know, class. I mean, to get Peter Fonda in your movie, like getting Pam Greer in your movie. Um, was I, David Carradine in the film? Yes. He's, he's the skinhead in yeah. the hotel who's like, turn, you know, look at me when I'm talking to you, shit. And you're like, that's freaking David Carradine. And he's, he's a blink and you miss some guy in there. But yeah, he, uh, um, I think there are probably a lot of people who just thought it would be like a blast to work with Carpenter, you know, because so many people have, have rightly have so much respect for him. That, that's wonderful. And so you said you, you watched this the, the other night? Yeah, just for the first time in, I would say, at least 20 years. I probably have not watched it in forever. Um, I feel like you can do an amazing audio commentary track on this movie. Oh yeah, my wife was sick of it. She kept pausing and she's like, what name? I'm like, no, this is, she's like, I've heard that story. All right, but I'm just trying to remember so I can tell the guys about it. Like, I'm just trying to remember what, you know, stuff that happened. And, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a trip to watch that thing. And, um, and in my opinion, I, I'm a, I am a fan of this movie for multiple reasons, but I think it still holds up 25 years later. There are parts of it that really do, you know, there, there, uh, the, the one thing I will say against it is that, you know, that surfing sequence still looks so terrible to me, effects-wise. Like, well, effects-wise, but a couple I... of shots where I'm like, ugh, but they actually, the shots in that, in that sequence that are really good are the ones that they shot in the, uh, the wave park in Texas. That was the only part of the movie that was not shot in Los Angeles itself, because we shot on location all around the city. Um, we had some sound stages that were just warehouses we converted, but the only the only part that was not shot in LA was the actual when you see them full full figure surfing um, mm -hmm. in that sequence. Everything else was shot in LA, most of it at night, which meant that the production office had to be open at night. So we were, we actually kept the production office open open twenty four seven. So there were some days you had to work the night shift and just be there in case anything came up. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some things, but it's really interesting when I was looking at it and thinking about, you know, the, the historical context of the movie of, you know, the, the idea of a, you know, religious zealot as the president in it, you know, was uh, very much of the time and, 
Um, it was interesting thinking about, you know, when Escape from New York came out, it was almost like the peak of when crime was at its all time high in the US. Like crime was on the rise in the 70s and then you get to the early 80s where you have movies like Escape from New York and um, you know, even Carpenter's other movie, Assault on Precinct 13, you know, Fort Apache, The Bronx and Warriors, things like that. Th 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 those kind of all feel like they're in the same, you know, panic about crime kind of thing. And then once you get to the 90s, actually crime started going down in the US. Um, so it was interesting to me, you know, what they were doing um, with Car you know, Carpenter and Deborah and Kirk were doing thematically with Escape from LA in terms of, you know, I think a lot of it was very much about satirizing LA, everything from yeah. plastic surgery to, you know, LA sports fans to, you know, surfing culture and uh, Disneyland, especially. I, I just thought it was funny, you know, they had the line at the end of, you know, oh, that thing in Paris killed him, which became ironic because actually, after many years, you know, Disneyland Paris became super successful, but it was way after that. And at the time, it was like, oh, that's Disney's big failure. And it was a big black mark, but um, ultimately became really, really successful. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to watch it, to see, you know, some stuff that, that does still hold up and uh, other things where you watch and you're like, man, I know that's not what they wanted for that sequence or something like that. But, uh, you know, Kurt is still great. You know, George Corfacci is really good in the movie. Like watching again, like is Cuervo, he's great. He's so charismatic and uh, um, all the performances I think are really, really good still um, watching it back again. That, that is, uh, I, I just love here. Somebody who worked, for, I mean, it's, when you said that it was just, you and like four other people, including the director and the producer at the start, and you got to see like the uh, the birth of this whole production come through. And so you have the stories right from the get-go. It was a huge education, yeah. No, that's wonderful. And do you still use some of the stuff you learned today on, that you learned, you know, in those first couple days on set? Or not on well, set, but in the office? Well, um probably in, in indirect ways in, you know, putting together the right crew, what you, what you value in coworkers, um, seeing people's work ethic. Um, at the same time, when I moved out here, I didn't know really what I wanted to be when I grew up in Hollywood. I was just happy to have any job whatsoever. Um, but there were instances where I was like, oh, that person seems like they have a really cool job. Oh, that person seems like they want to kill themselves every day. That's not what I want to do. You know, their job seems horrible. So you got to, it, it was a really good sense of like, it, it helped um, clarify for me in some ways, the things that I didn't necessarily want to do in Hollywood or that were not uh, appealing, but I was always interested in the, the very beginning creative process, you know, the, the gestation of an idea, seeing story, come together, um, seeing, you know, how the casting process came together, um, you know, camaraderie on a team. I mean, that's whether you're on a sports team or if you've been in a theater production or on a movie, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's a very intense period for a limited, you know, time. And then you're all separated again and you see each other once in a while, you know, you see Karen Costa 20 plus years later and um, so there's, there's a little bit of a sadness to that, but it's also, 
it, it helps you appreciate it while it's going on. That like, especially if you feel like you're working on something good, but you, you, don't, you never really have a sense. When you're working on something, you're like, is this going to be good? I have no idea. I hope so. But we're just trying to finish the damn thing right now because we're, we're putting out fires left and right. You just hope that you've put all the pieces in place and done everything well so that it turns out even remotely good at the end. But, um, you know, just that sort of uh, way that relationships evolve um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've made lifelong friends on that movie. Uh, That's great. Uh, three fun questions for you. Uh, since you're in the animation world, is, <laughs> is there a certain uh, old school Disney or Looney Tunes cartoon that always stuck with you? Uh, many. Well, the interesting thing is when I was growing up, um, uh, Warner Brothers cartoons were on all the time on TV. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century, like was always one of my favorites. Um, and, uh, but the Disney movies uh, were, you know, when I was growing up, it was sort of the, uh, a lull in the Disney output. You know, Walt had passed away a bunch of years before I was born. Um, you know, it wasn't yet the second renaissance with Little Mermaid and uh, Aladdin and all the stuff that, that everyone did at that point. So the only Disney movies that were out were, were re-releases of things. Um, but there were others in there. I think there was like, you know, Oliver and Company and um, uh, a couple others uh, mixed in there. Um, Sword and Stone. Um, so growing up, the Disney movies weren't a huge thing for me. Wonderful that Disney was on. Um, but once I started at Disney, you know, anybody in my, in my department who would start, we would go through sort of a boot camp, which would basically be, you would go back and watch every single Disney movie, uh, animated movie ever made. It might take you a month, uh, but you would go back and watch all of them. So I've seen every single one. And, you know, I would say the one that stuck with me a lot was Bambi, of course. Um, you know, it's interesting that in Bambi, uh, what's the one thing people remember about Bambi the most? The mother dying. Gets killed. Mother yeah. dies. And it's such a tiny part of the movie. And immediately after that scene happens, it goes into this upbeat springtime, hey kids, forget about that, stop crying in the theater, we're going to show you happy sequence now kind of thing. Um, but it, it was, it, it's interesting because it's, it, it's, it carries such weight in the movie. And that's always been kind of instructive to me of like, you know, a little goes a long way when you're dealing with heavy emotion in a story. You know, you don't always have to drag it out for it to have a lasting impact on the audience. But just, um, you know, during part of my time at Disney, I worked on, we did a, a sequel to Bambi, um, which uh, sounds sacrilegious to many, but it's actually, I think it's one of the better movies that we did um, when I was working at that division. Um, but when we referred back to the original a lot, it gave you a, such a great appreciation for the artistry that went into that movie and um, economy and just, you know, the, the, the background paintings and, you know, the, the meticulous animation and um, truly the, you know, the illusion of life as uh, two of the nine old men, Frank and Ollie called it in their iconic book. And, um, and also Dumbo uh, because it's also, you know, a short movie incredibly emotional i think has the least dialogue of any disney animated movie um and both of those just in terms of you know i'm a writer but uh 
if I can get away with having as little of my stupid dialogue on screen as possible, great. That means we've done a great job with visual storytelling. I mean, it's a visual medium and to rely on uh, the visuals to tell the story as much as you can. I think that th those two especially are, uh, you know, among many of them, uh, the best at that. I like that. Um, my second, number two, uh, since mm -hmm. you mentioned you were into comic books and uh, yeah. illustrations, uh, is there a certain comic book that you love the most and is there anything you're currently reading? I haven't read stuff in a long time. I'm ashamed to say I used to be a big collector before I moved out here. Um, you know, had bunches of long boxes of stuff. You know, at one point I had collected every single appearance of the Punisher, which, you know, I thought was great because of its complete moral ambiguity. And I always thought the best Punisher stories were ones with other characters like Spider-Man or Daredevil where you could contrast and have those sort of philosophical debates. And, um, and, uh, uh, but then when I moved out here, I was actually, I was like, I was like, I had saved my money. I have to cut myself off from going and buying a pile of comics every week at the comic book store. But uh, I was lucky because one of my roommates owned a comic book store. He actually owns several comic book stores now. So there was anything that was new that I wanted to read. It was always around the house anyway. So I sort of um, uh, got away with that. But I will, you know, not, this is not a, a plug, but to be perfectly honest, I was reading the whole run of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. You know, that's, uh, that's yeah. what I've been reading most uh, recently. And, uh, and there are other older series that I've been reading recently that I will not say because we're going to tap into them for the show and I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but. <laughs> oh, let me <laughs> take a uh, guess. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could take a guess, but uh, I'm, um, one of the things I'm thinking of is a, a, a classic that we're gonna, uh, utilize at some point in the, in the show, but I don't want to reveal that because secrets and I will get in trouble. So. Awesome. All right. Well, well, we'll have you back on the show when it's announced. Yes, please. I mean, uh, the show's supposed to premiere in early 2022. Cool. You know, movie making takes forever and animation takes even longer. Um, so, uh, yeah, about a year and a half from now. Uh, cool. We're supposed to premiere. And then How, what, what I was... If you don't mind, like since it takes so long, like for me, like when I put something, I have so much time with it, I want to keep messing with it. Oh, so how do you refrain well, from doing that? The good thing is, is that, yes, I mean, if there's no deadline, you will keep messing with it. Somebody said like, you know, uh, you know, works of art are never finished. They're just abandoned. You know, you, you yeah. can work on it forever. Um, but in, in, you know, when you're working on whether it's an animated movie or especially a TV series, at some point you have to go pencils down because it has to move on to the next phase. So, you know, I, I'm one of two people in charge of uh, uh, the writer's room in addition. I'm a story editor and co-producer on the show. So I do writing, I, I, I uh, myself and my other co-producers supervise the writers and then we're involved in casting and voice records and everything else. But when you uh, write the script, at a certain point it's like, people gotta start drawing it. We gotta start recording those voices, pencils down, move on to the next phase. And, you know, once it's the storyboards, you can mess with it somewhat, but it's like, it's got to move on to the next phase. It's got to go to design. It's got to go to layout. Then it's got to go to animation. And once it gets into animation, you cannot, like, then it becomes super expensive. You want to change anything. And then it's in post. So, yeah, you have a short window to work on your, whether you're boarding or whether you're animating or anything. Um, so even though it's a year and a half till it comes out, like, the episode we're working on this week, like... We got to be done with it this week, writing-wise, because it's got to move on to the next phase. And then, 
I hope it's still good a year and a half from now. I hope the jokes we made up today are still funny. And, you know, it, it, it forces you to try to be um, a little more timeless with the stuff that you're trying to do, especially when you're making a movie because a movie might take four years. Like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to do this topical joke today. I mean, the only people who can really do that are South Park, and I have no clue how they do it. I mean, I think they had <laughs> a documentary, they show their production process. I think it was, what's it called, Six Days to Air or something. And, um, but they're, they're, they're uh, genius anomalies at that. Everybody else is sort of, you know, you have to think in the, in the long term of, you know, uh, I hope this will be funny later. But the, the other thing you have to do is it, when it takes so long, um, one piece of advice we had gotten was remember your first laugh because you're going to see the same joke like 20 times when you're reading it over and over again. You, do, you read it in several drafts, you do the table read, you hear it in the record, you see it in the storyboard, you see it in the animation. Like, you know, by the time you've seen it 20 times, you're like, Haha, okay, I've seen the joke. You have to remember, okay, you thought it was funny the first time you saw it. And that's how the audience is going to see it, hopefully, the first yeah. time they saw it. So remember that if you're getting sick of the same joke 20 times. Well, I guess it's a good thing that you're married to a critic, and so you got to bounce some ideas off. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hear it anyway. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, but she doesn't, she doesn't, you know, she will give me her opinion, of course, but she doesn't write on, write up anything that I've ever worked on, just to avoid the, the conflict of interest, you know, that gets handed off to, to somebody else. But yeah, she's, she sees stuff that's just about every phrase, but she's sworn to secrecy too, so you can't pry it out of her. Yeah. Ooh. Um, and then my, the third question is, uh, since you're just uh, steeped in love, passionate about motion pictures and cinema, are there any certain scenes from movies that have always stuck with you and inspire you? You wake up and you're just like, oh, that scene in that movie so good. Mm, that's hard. Man, there's so many. I mean, one of mine, you mentioned it, D Dumbo is the, the trip sequence when they get drunk and oh, just yeah. pink elephants on parade pink is on parade for sure. From that moment in time for a kid's movie is unbelievably ambitious. And no, that, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, and, and since you mentioned that, thinking in the animation realm, I, one that always stuck with me um, was uh, Jesse's song from Toy Story 2, which I'm sure I'm not alone. Yeah. With many, many people, but I remember um when i first saw that we were at an all-day uh sort of creative conference slash retreat um and toy story 2 had not come out yet it was in production and uh the heads of the studio we were going to take a you know a break and they said you know we were gonna um show you guys some scenes from the up upcoming toy story 2 um but then we thought you know what we'll just show you guys the whole movie and they showed us the entire movie and when that sequence came up, everybody in that room is freaking falling. Um, and, you know, to this day, I would say on almost any animated project I've worked on, that gets referred back to at some point of like, man, if we can capture one, one hundredth of the emotion of that sequence and the relatability and the impact and the just total gut punch of that, um, Man, that and that whole movie I thought was brilliant just because it's so hard to make a good sequel in the first place. You could probably count on one hand, maybe two, the truly great sequels, Empire, Godfather 2, you know. Evil Dead uh, 2 and Toy Story 2. Yeah, and Toy Story 2. I mean, really, because Toy Story 2 took, you know, it was such a brilliant concept of 
collectible toy getting kidnapped, you know, and, and the sort of existential crisis for Woody. Um, but that sequence in the middle there, um, you know, when somebody loves you, man, you I mean, you, you just hear part of that. You start to tear up. I would also add, you know, in that vein, um, you know, the first 10 minutes or so of up. Uh, yes. You know, I mean, it, it's funny, like Courtney was showing me um, just some, you know, we're big uh, dog lovers and dachshund lovers. And she was just showing me some Instagram videos somebody did of their dachshund. And uh, they put the music from that over. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, I'm not okay. watching it. Like, I, I don't need to cry today. I'm not watching it. Turn it off. <laughs> I don't want to any other music, play any other music. I'm just like, I don't want to, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's so emotional. But those guys, you know, guys who worked on Toy Story 2 and Pete Doctor, you know, freaking genius up and everything else he's done. And um, yeah, yeah, those two, yeah, but especially that, that Toy Story sequence, um, that's, that's a big one. That's a big one. Nice. No. Um, so uh, to wrap this up, wrap this My Bloody Podcast up, let's do bloody recommendations. Recommend a movie, a horror movie uh, that you want to let the world know that they may or may not know about. Well, see, the thing is, is like I, you guys are much bigger horror aficionados than I am. And my wife always makes fun of me because uh, uh, I, I get too scared by horror movies. A lot of the time I'm like such a wimp about uh, horror movies. Um, but a few that I will mention that I really loved, um, and you know, you guys and your listeners, I'm sure have seen these, so this is not going to be any surprise to anybody, but, um, the original, let the right one in. I thought yes. Absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, you know, oh, of course, big fan of the first Halloween. We, we talked about that. Um, the one that sometimes gets a bad rap, I think unfairly, um, is the first Blair Witch Project. Oh, I and love that movie. The, and the reason I, I will throw that in is because of the way I first saw the Blair Witch Project in that one of my friends had a bootleg copy of it pre-release on videotape. Mm. And he brought it home and, uh, you know, late at night in our darkened little TV room and put it on. And so for the first 10 minutes, I'm like, is this real? Like, I didn't know. I knew nothing. I had never heard of it. I knew nothing about this movie. So eventually I caught on that like, oh, that's the gag that it's supposed to be like I like found footage film. Like there wasn't, that wasn't a thing then. So I'm watching it. I'm like, this is the scariest damn thing I have ever seen. Cause you never see the Like, and it's the great thing about it is I don't think there is one jump scare in that movie. It is all this building dread to the point where when night starts to fall, when you're about an hour into the movie, you're like, please no. Don't let night fall again. Please just stay daytime. And that last shot in the corner, everything. And I was like, oh my God, that is so terrifying. And, I, and then later on, I actually took that tape. I showed it to my brother. I was visiting him back East. And we watched it in the middle of the day uh, in his living room, his dogs jumping on us and stuff like that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that was pretty scary. And it didn't have the same impact. And then later that, that night, we were like driving past some wooded area. I said, so you didn't think that movie was scary? How'd you like me to take you a hundred yards into that woods and leave you there? He's like, <laughs> no. And then it was all flooded back to him and he was impacted by it. And then the last one I will mention, which is also will not be a surprise to anybody, but one my wife would definitely make fun of me for is uh, Midsommar. Oh, uh, yes. Which, uh, she had seen and then took me to see it. And I found that to be the most disturbing movie I've ever seen. It is masterful 
but I don't know that I can recommend it to people because I don't know that I can qualify my viewing experience as enjoyment because I came out of that feeling just, oh my God, that was the most disturbing thing I've ever seen, which means they did their jobs yeah. wonderfully. And, you know, Courtney got some swag from that movie. She got like a little, I, I don't know if it's vodka or what, little Midsommar bottle. And I came home one day and it was sitting on the table and I'm like, nope, get that. Like, I'm going really to Sweden. Like she, <laughs> and, and she had actually, and I realized later, she had tweeted a picture of it saying, when my husband sees this, he's going to say, nope. And that's exactly what I did. But I mean, just a masterful piece of suspense and i'm so glad you mentioned that because press and i uh, it was like our favorite movie of that year we've talked to the director before ari aster uh we love that, that movie. i will ever put it in my favorite movie category because it was so like i never want to watch that movie again but oh. that kind of but i admire it for that that means it's good it's great at what it did that's I like how i feel that. about event horizon <laughs> <laughs> it's so good oh oh midsummer we love yeah. you wonderful wonderful recommendations yeah, uh, if anybody Preston, hasn't seen those i would recommend all of them except midsummer do not watch that because it's incredible we're going to by, sweden wait we're, we're the three of us are going to sweden next week what are you talking about we're gonna go live this oh no i hear i hear plane flights are, are pretty cheap well, i'm sure <laughs> they are because they're, they're all one way because you never come back yeah. <laughs> uh, Preston, what's your recommendation, bud? Uh, I'm going to bend the rules a little bit uh, just because being at home, my horror intake's a little bit different because I'm, my son's awake all the time and I work all day. And just as Jeff was talking about, like it's like your work life and your home life are constantly bleeding into each other. Yeah. So I can't normalize any, any of those things, any of those arenas. So all my horror kind of stuff is kid related. So since HBO Max launched, I've been watching all the original Scooby-Doo episodes from 1969, 1970. That counts. And uh, so every Friday night we watch uh, a movie with my son who's three years old, almost three. And so we've been going through all the Hotel Transylvania movies and things like that. So that's my recommendation. If you're looking for something with your kids, those movies really are so good. So Cool. Uh, yeah. There we go. Wonderful. Uh, mine, um, I'm going to relate to Escape from LA, Escape from New York. Uh, it is a 2008 movie called Doomsday by Neil Marshall, who did uh, Dog Soldiers. And it's got all the elements of Escape from LA, Escape from New York, and Mad Max in there in this kind of dystopian war-torn world where somebody has to go in and kind of save the planet from a bunch of crazies. Uh, Doomsday, it is over-the-top, silly, fun, violent greatness with one-liners. Uh, it is, it's a movie John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, I'm sure, will be proud of. Doomsday from 2008. I'll check that out. I've not seen it. I think you'll really like it uh, if you have not seen it. Um, but yeah, Rona Mitra basically plays the Snake Plissken character. So oh, awesome. uh, pretty great. Uh, but yeah, that's our episode of My Bloody Podcast. Uh, this was an awesome episode. We want to thank you, Jeff, for yeah. being on the show. Is there anywhere uh, you want to let the listeners know where to find you online if you're online? I am nowhere online. Good. He's but nowhere he's online, so you can call him and tell him what you think about his movie. <laughs> call Paramount and say, give me the forwarding number for Jeff Howard. I want to scream at him about something. Um, 
<laughs> no, but thank thank you guys for having me on. I mean, as I said, you know, it's it's so great to take a, a trip down memory lane to a, a movie and a period of my life that was so important and transformative and, um, you know, still has lasting impact. I'm glad people still enjoy the movie today. You know, I'm glad it, glad it holds up. We do. We look forward to talking with you with about your upcoming works. Yes, indeed. Be happy to come back and talk about it. Uh, and we are uh, My Bloody Podcast. We're on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio. And uh, we love you all. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>